Well, the story is told about two little boys that were playing with one another, and as they started playing, you know how boys are. I've been watching Jackson and Josiah this week, and they get kind of rough, you know, start fighting with each other. But anyway, these two little boys kind of got rough and were fighting with each other, and one of the little boys hurt the other one. He goes, I'm sorry, Georgie, I didn't mean to hurt you. And he goes, the little boy responded, he said, well, kind of sorry. He said, the kind of sorry that you won't do it again, sorry. I also know of another story that happened. This is also a true story. It happened to me, yours truly. And it happened about 15, 20 years ago. And it was an area in my marriage where I was continually going back to my husband and asking him to forgive me for a certain offense in my marriage. And I'll never remember one morning I was convicted that I had repeated this sin again, and so I went back to the bathroom where he was shaving and getting ready for the day, and I said, you know, I want to ask your forgiveness again for, I don't remember now what it was, for whatever the transgression was. And he said, I'm not going to forgive you. And I was like, what? And he said, Susan, you're not repentant. He said, you really are not repentant. If you were repentant, you would change. And I have to tell you, at first, that kind of bothered me, and I thought, well, that's not very Christ-like. But you know what? It was the jolt that I needed in my life and in my marriage to get me to change, and now I don't do that thing anymore. God used it to help me to see how serious sin was and how I needed to repent. Now, ladies, I use those two examples to lead into something else. That is today, modern-day Christianity. Would you agree with me that modern-day Christianity has lost sight of what sin is and what repentance is? We We see people go forward in evangelical meetings or at a camp meeting or a revival or something, and they go forward based on some emotional response or they say some mushy prayer and yet their lives never seem to change. Some are even worse than that. Instead of tears and mourning over sin, we see laughter. A few years ago, you know, the big thing was holy laughter and barking like dogs in the church service. We have taken sin very lightly, and we as evangelicals are paying for it, aren't we? We've lost what it means to fear God and to not sin. We started last week by looking in James chapter 4 at the forms of worldliness. We saw that James rebukes them for their fighting, their warring, their lusting, their coveting, their, you know, you just list all these sins. You lust, you have not, you covet, you desire to have, you can't have. Why? Because you ask, you ask amiss, you want to consume it upon your lust. And then he ended in this really sobering rebuke, and he calls them adulteresses. You adulteresses, do you not know that the friendship of the world, doing these things, lusting and coveting and arguing and contending with one another, do you not know that these things show that you're a friend of the world? And do you not know that if you're a friend of the world, then you can't be what? God's friend. You're an enemy of God. And we ended up on a very sobering note. You can't have it both ways. If you love the world, you hate God. Therefore, you are not his. Strong words. And tonight we're going to see the remedy for this worldliness. And ladies, it's not walking down an aisle in a revival meeting. You're going to be a little bit surprised. 
In fact, tonight, as I mentioned last week, this is a call to salvation. This is the text I want preached at my funeral. So I don't want necessarily what I'm going to say tonight preached at my funeral. But this is the text that I would like preached at my funeral. This is a call to repent to salvation. Let's read, if you would, James 4, beginning in verse 5. James says, Do you think the scripture says in vain the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? But he gives more grace. Wherefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the sight of God, and he will lift you up. Excuse me, I brushed ahead. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And that's all we're going to cover this evening. Now, in the lesson this evening, we're going to see a remedy for worldliness. And it's twofold. First of all, it's a complete devotion to God. The remedy for worldliness is a complete devotion to God, verses 5 through 7. And then lastly, a complete denial of yourself. A complete denial of yourself, verses 8 through 10. So first, we have a complete devotion to God and then a complete denial of ourself in order to rid ourselves of worldliness. Let's look, first of all, at a complete devotion to God. Notice what he says. Do you think the scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? Now, you might have scratched your head after reading this sentence and said, say what? What is he saying? Well, not to worry because this is one of the most difficult verses in James to interpret. And so, in fact, my husband and I, uh, we disagreed in our interpretation. And today I was reworking my lesson to change to his interpretation because he was proving to me his interpretation was right. And I think it really is. So in order to understand this, look at the word spirit. I don't know what what translation you have, King James, New King James, or NIV, or NAS. But the translation of spirit here is pneuma. It's a small s. Yours might have a big s, like it's referring to the whole, does yours have a big s? But the actual literal translation in the Greek is a small s, which makes sense because James is talking about what? Unbelievers. It's impossible For an unbeliever to have what? The Holy Spirit inside of you. And why would he lust to envy anyway? It doesn't make any sense. This is talking about the spirit. You know, we're made up of what? We have a body and a what? A spirit. It's talking about a person's spirit that lusts to envy. What he's just been talking about. Fighting and warring and coveting. He says, don't you, do you think the scripture says in vain that spirit, the spirit that excuse me, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy. Those who love the world are enemies of God, and he's going to call them to salvation with ten imperatives here. Now, you might have said also, well, what scripture is he talking about? There is no scripture that says the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy, except this one right here. So what is he talking about? Well, ladies, the whole of scripture talks about this, The whole of scripture talks about the fact that you cannot have allegiance and devotion to God and allegiance and devotion to the world. It is 
impossible. In fact, think of Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them nor serve them. I am the Lord, your God. You can't have it both ways, right? You can't worship the God and you can't worship other gods. Or how about Exodus 34? Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going. Least they be a snare to you, you shall worship no other God. And on he goes. Or how about Deuteronomy 6? You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him. You shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. Why? For the Lord God is jealous. Ladies, the scripture, we could go, we could start in Genesis and go through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, all the way through. And God is giving the same message to the Israelites. You can't serve me and call me your friend and at the same time go over here and serve other gods. And James is saying the same thing. It's impossible. It's impossible. You can't love God and love the world at the same time. He goes on in verse 6 to say, but he gives more grace. What is he saying? Ladies, God gives us grace far above what we deserve it's wave upon wave day upon day you might say grace greater than what what is he talking about here what's the contrast greater than the temptation of the world the flesh the devil that is pulling at the unbeliever ladies it's the idea that paul speaks of in romans five twenty, where he says where sin abound grace does what much more abound. Or how about Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For by, anybody repeat that? For by grace, for by grace are you saved? What? Through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Ladies, God graciously works in our lives so we actually experience a greater measure of his grace than we would have otherwise thought possible. He gives more grace, more grace than what? Than the enemy, the devil, the world, the flesh. And then James says something very interesting. God, wherefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In fact, it's interesting, this statement comes from Proverbs 3.34, where it says, Surely he scorns the scornful, but he gives grace to the humble. Ladies, God resists the proud. This is a very solemn warning. You might say, well, what's a proud person? Well, we know they're lost. They're haughty. They're arrogant. They place themselves above God. God resists the proud in fact the greek word here resist is a verb that vividly pictures god as placing himself in battle against this person who is proud in fact you know there's no other sin in the bible that that is mentioned that arouses god's anger more than pride that's the number one thing that arouses his anger remember it was pride that turned what satan right he was in heaven he goes you know what i'm gonna be like god In fact, I'm going to be like the Most High God. Why? He was prideful. What happened? God cast him out of heaven, didn't he? 
He was an angel. He was the most beautiful. Lucifer, the morning star, he was gorgeous. God says, no, mm -mm. you're not going to be like me. You're not going to be above me. And he cast him down. Ladies, pride is a sin the Lord hates the most because it's a sin that sets yourself against him. In fact, let me hear, give you some warnings about this. Proverbs six sixteen to 19 says this. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows, sows discord among the brethren. So what is one of the seven things God hates most? Pride. How about this one, Proverbs eight thirteen? The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. That's strong, isn't it? How about this one? Proverbs 16, 5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. Ladies, the bad news is that God does resist the proud. And if this evening you do not have genuine saving faith and verses 1 through 4 describe you, God is resisting you right now. He is standing in array against you. God resists the proud, but praise God. Notice what he says next, but he gives grace to the humble. Ladies, that's a message of encouragement. God will impart his grace to you if you will take a lowly position of humility. Those that are humble have a deep awareness of their sinfulness, their dependence on God. In fact, even in the spiritual realm, once you embrace Christ as your Savior, I've heard people say this. In fact, someone in here just told me that recently. I won't point out who it was. The closer you get to God, the more you see your sinfulness. Isn't that true? That's the heart of a believer. To those of you who are humble, God gives grace. But ladies, if you're proud, don't expect it. Don't expect it. God resists the proud. Well, because of God's amazing grace, we should abandon our pride. And ladies, now James gives 10 imperatives. And by the way, these are in the aorist tense in the Greek, which means this is a one-time thing that happens. You know, we've talked about the imperfect tense. In other words, you know, these things you're continually to do. But this is a one-time act. These 10 imperatives that he, are saying, that he is saying. That's why we know this is a call to salvation. These are the things that I pray took place at the time of your conversion. If not, then maybe you need to examine yourself this evening to see if you're in the faith. So he gives these 10 commands to those who are arrogant. Ladies, this is a call to repentance. This is a call to salvation. This is a call to those who are lovers of the world that he's just been addressing as he started chapter 4. Notice the first command in verse 7. Therefore, submit to God. Ladies, if you wish to be saved, if you are not saved this evening, or if you, like Tiffany, have a friend that's lost, if you want to be the opposite of God's enemy, then you know what you need to do, number one? You need to put yourself under submission to him. 
In fact, this is a military term. James uses a lot of military terms. In other words, it means get yourself under the proper rank. If you want his grace, submit to him. Submission is accepting God's will for your life instead of imposing your will and accepting God's providence as the best provision for your life. Ladies, this is the first thing we do when we submit our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We turn away from the friendship of the world. I don't any longer want to be a friend of the world. And what? We submit to God. We submit to him. We have a friendship with God, not with the world. And ladies, this submission is a permanent thing, just like his grace. In fact, if you know Christ is your Savior tonight, you'll understand what I'm going to say. Do you know once you submit to God, it's harder? It's hard to submit and to anyone else? I'm not talking about your husband here. But it's hard to submit to anybody else. Once you submit to God, once you know what his word says, why would you want to submit to those things in the world? Why do you even want to submit to yourself? In fact, I see the same principle in my marriage. You know, when I became a believer at the age of 30, I wasn't about to be submissive to Douglas Van Allen Heck. I mean, no one was ever going to tell me what to do. And when I God saved me and I realized that my marriage was in big trouble, and that was one of the biggest issues, was I was not a submissive wife. And once the Lord started dealing with me in that, and I became a submissive wife, I'm like, what have I, how come I've been resisting this all this year? This is great. It's like so freeing. You can't imagine being submissive to any... Well, I wouldn't want to submit to anyone else's husband. But it's very freeing. It is a very freeing thing. For those of you that are submissive to your husband, you know exactly what I'm saying. In fact, those times that I tem- I'm tempted to be resistive to what Doug thinks I ought to do, I always get in trouble later and I think, I should have done what I knew I should have done. In fact, it's interesting. This command here to submit to God is in the middle voice, which means it's a voluntary submission to God. Ladies, God does not want forced obedience. He wants a willing heart. Doug used to say, Susan, you're submitting outwardly, but inwardly it's not so good what you're doing. Well, if you wholeheartedly submit to God, then notice the next thing you can do. Resist the devil, he says. This is the second imperative James gives. This is a military term again. It means stand against him. Chase him away. Position yourself in battle. Resist him. Don't let him lure you into those things he just talked about, those worldly things. Wars, fightings, lusting, coveting. Run. Be like Joseph. He ran, he got out. Resist him. You might say, well, how do I do that? What is he talking about? Remember, he's calling them to salvation. After they submit to God wholeheartedly and to his will for their life, they have to resist Satan. They have to get away from loving the world. Paul and Peter both give us hints about this. Paul in Ephesians 6, remember he's talking about the armor that we put on every day. You know one of the things he says? Take the shield of faith. Faith. That's how you resist Satan. Take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Peter says the same thing. Be sober. Be vigilant. Why? Your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, walking about seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the what? Faith. Faith. 
Ladies, we resist Satan by faith. Submission to God by faith in Christ. Faith is the victory. Faith is the victory. You know, just a little side note here. Sometimes I hear people say, you know, well, we have some kind of authority to rebuke or bind Satan. I wished we did. I don't know of anywhere where that is taught in the word of God. I wish we had that authority. Then I wouldn't have so many temptations throughout the day, right? I could just bind him up and throw him out the window. But even Michael, the archangel, you know, he treated Satan with more respect than we do. In fact, Michael did not dare to bring a reviling accusation against Satan. You know what he said? The Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. I can't, but he can. Also, if you'll take note of what the Lord said to Satan, remember Joshua, the high priest, he was standing before the angel of the Lord, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. So, ladies, if you resist Satan, what happens? Well, notice there's wonderful news here. James says he will flee from you. Ladies, that is a promise. That is a promise. If you resist him steadfast in the faith, as you yield your heart and your life to God, and you turn away from the things of this world, he will flee from you. But... If you have an attitude of indecision, we're going to talk about this in just a minute, doubt, which is, remember James calls them double-minded. Why? They're going back and forth. If you have an attitude of indecision and doubt, you know what it does? It makes him bold, makes him aggressive. Ah, here's a doubter. I'll just plow right in there. But you confront him with a very strong will and a firm confidence. As the Apostle John says, greater is he that is what? In us than he that is in the world. Well, we are to submit to God and resist the devil. Ladies, the remedy for worldliness is a complete devotion to God. How? By humility and submission before God and a resisting of the evil one. In fact, in verses 8 to 10, we continue with the 10 imperatives, and we to see that we are also, if you want to rid yourself of worldliness, you should have a complete denial of yourself. Notice the third command in verse 8. James says, draw near to God. Draw near to God. Isn't it interesting that resisting the devil will result in drawing near to God? You know, when you run away from something, you what? Run to something, right? So as you resist Satan and you flee from him and you run from him and you run from the world, you what? You draw near to God. Run from your enemy, Satan. Run to your friend, God. In fact, this term drawing near conveys the thought of entering into communion with God as an acceptable worshiper. And ladies, the Jewish reader that is reading this epistle would understand this because this was a common Old Testament concept. It would describe the priest's responsibilities in approaching the tabernacle and their sacred ceremonies. They drew near to God. Ladies, it's impossible for sinful man, sinful woman, to draw near to a holy God unless he draws you. In fact, it's the faith of God implanted in our hearts through the operation of the Spirit that gives you even the desire to draw near to God, right? 
In fact, it's that engrafted word which is able to save your souls that James said in James 1, 21. You might say, well, how do you draw near to God if you're an unbeliever? Right here in this context, you submit to him. You yield to him. You obey him. Well, what are the results when you draw near to God? They're great results. Notice what James says. He'll draw near to you. He'll draw near to you. Ladies, we can't draw near to God with dirty hands. That's why James goes on with the next imperative. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. He's still calling them to salvation. In fact, the Jewish reader again would understand this because in the Old Testament, remember what the priests had to do when they came into the, to the temple? They had to wash their hands. At least they die. Exodus 30 says, wash your hands, God said, or you will die. You might say, well, what does this symbolize here? Well, water what? Removes the physical filth from their hands. Ladies, spiritual filth also has to be removed from our hands. In fact, our hands are what? Symbols of what? Our actions, our doings, right? Therefore, to cleanse our hands means what? We recognize they're dirty and they need to be washed. Purify, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Ladies, we must confess, we must repent of our sins. Well, not only do we need to cleanse our hands, but notice what else we need to do. Purify our hearts. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is the fifth command, and it calls for an inner purification. You know, you might say, well, you know, isn't just the cleaning of my hands enough? I mean, why do I have to, you know, go inside to the heart? Well, the cleansing of your hands is really a metaphor of what? The outward activity. Now, that's good, right? But what if we just do that? I know a lot of people that have come to Christ and come to Christ. I use that term loosely, and they've just cleaned their hands. That makes them a good hypocrite, doesn't it? I was one of those for 30 years. I was a great hypocrite. Outwardly, I look great. Cleanse your hands. But ladies, purifying your heart, that's a symbolic of what? Inside, what's going on. Our thoughts, our attitudes, our drives. You know, outwardly, our hands might appear clean, but our heart is what? Might not be pure. In fact, the psalmist asks a very interesting question in Psalm 24. Lord, who can ascend to your hill? Who can stand in your holy place? Listen to what he says. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Both. Ladies, if you want a clean life, you have to have a clean heart. Isn't that what Jesus said? For out of the heart proceed what? Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, blasphemies. Out of the what? Heart. The heart here represents our inner life. You might say, well, how do I get a pure heart? By being separated into God, being devoted, being obedient to him. In fact, purity carries the idea here of separation unto God. Separation unto God. You know, it's interesting, James calls them here double-minded. Did you notice him the first time he called them sinners? Sinners? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, why is he calling them double-minded? 
They're divided. They love the world. But, you know, they want God too. Didn't we come to this in chapter 1, right in the beginning? Remember, you're going through a trial, and, you know, we're supposed to count it all joy. We go through these trials of many colors, and then James says, hey, so when you go through this trial, and if you need wisdom, you ask of God, right? And he'll give lots of it to you. But don't ask what? Doubting, right? What's he saying? This person that goes through a trial, they're doubting about, well, maybe God can do it, maybe he can't. They're double-minded. And James says, let not that man think he'll receive anything of the Lord. Nothing. He shows, he proves his faith to be spurious. It's not genuine. James calls them double-minded here. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Remember double-minded, we looked back then in the Greek, it means someone that has two souls. John Bunyan calls it Mr. Facing Both Ways. Remember? Ladies, it can't be. It cannot be. You cannot have a heart for God and a heart for the world. In fact, I was talking to Cindy the other day. We were, we've had some great conversations while she's been here. We were talking, both of us, about our frustration and working with people. And, you know, they claim to love the Lord and they live for the world. And I said, you know, Cindy, I just want to tell them, just go live for the world. But don't live for both because it's blasphemous. Just live full out for Satan and the world or live full out for God. But don't live, you know, for God and live for the world too. It's impossible. Mr. Facing both ways, too sold. It can't be. You know, we want the world to see our clean hands, right? We like to be good hypocrites. Yeah, I'm a good Christian. But when it comes to our heart, which no one can see but God, we're double-minded. We know the world can't see our hearts, so we convince ourselves God can't see what's inside either. Ladies, you're not fooling him, not for one minute. James is calling these lovers of the world, these enemies of God, to salvation. Ladies, if you're too sold this evening, if you are facing both ways, you're in trouble. You are in trouble. You might say, well, how can I come be united? How can I be united in my hands and my heart? How can I love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength? How can I do that? Well, James gives the answer in verse 9 to 10. Lament, weep, mourn. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. In fact, James rapidly gives the 6th, 7th, and the 8th commandments. Lament, mourn, weep. What is he talking about? Lament over your sin. Mourn over your sin. Weep over your sin. Sin of what? Sin of loving the world, hating God. Lament, be miserable. That's what the Greek means, be miserable. Feel miserable, wretched. Do you? You know, I remember when I gave my life to Christ, when I finally realized that I've been living a life of hypocrisy. That is the one thing that I can honestly say that for the first time in my life, I saw myself as a sinner. Now, my father had given me the gospel message, you know, many times. I heard it in Sunday school. I heard it at church. I knew that Christ died for the ungodly. I knew that Christ died for my sins. I prayed the prayer. You know, I did walk the aisle. I did the Christian thing. But ladies, when God drew me to himself, when God's grace, as James talking about tonight, 
that grace that is greater than than the enemy, when God drew me to himself and I began to see my sinfulness, I wept. I started thinking about all the ugly, dirty things that I had done for those 30 years, my total life of hypocrisy and my wickedness and my sinfulness, and I wept uncontrollably. So what James saying, lament for your sins. Ladies, when a true realization of sin sets in, you should feel wretched. Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. Or Isaiah, woe is me. <laughs> I'm undone. Job, I abhor myself. I repent. James uses another word here, mourn. Mourn, he says. This indicates a grieving and sorrow that a repentant sinner should feel. With such intensity, it can't be concealed. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? We're getting ready to study that here Sunday morning. Blessed are they that what? Mourn. What's he talking about? A mourning for sin there in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are they that mourn. Why? They'll be comforted. Then James adds another word, weep. Weep. This is, ladies, an outward display of sorrow. Then he goes right into the ninth imperative. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, ladies, first of all, this might seem really morbid to you, but not when you consider what James is doing. He's calling them to repent, to salvation. Now, there are times when laughter is appropriate, and you know, I like to laugh just like you do. And laughter is good medicine, right? Proverbs tells us that. But ladies, laughter is never appropriate when you are mourning over sin in fact the laughter here is a reference to flippant laughter of a careless unconcern if you have genuinely given your life to jesus christ you cannot laugh at sin you can't be flippant you can't bark like a dog you can't have holy laughter you know while you're talking about your sin In fact, James says this flippant laughter is to be turned to mourning, to gloom, sorrow. Sorrow about what? Sorrow for your sin. Ladies, God, I hope you have a conscience. I hope you haven't seared your conscience. I hope you haven't desensitized your conscience. But God has made us to feel sorrow when we sin. You should experience heaviness. You should experience gloom. If you're living in unconfessed sin. Ladies, James is calling for genuine repentance. Weep, lament, mourn over your sin. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. You know, I was thinking about this in relation to Nehemiah. Remember the good old days? Good old days. You know, the Israelites, what it says about them, they read the Bible one fourth of the day. And another fourth of the day, they confess their sins. Now, ladies, how about I have you all over next week, and for one-fourth of the day, we're going to sit in my den and confess and mourn over our sins. I don't think. I bet it'd be me, myself, and I there. (laughs) Our consciences are dulled, aren't they? You know our attitude? Oh, you know, sorry, God, I goofed today, you know. I know I screamed at my husband or... I mean, I messed up a little bit, but you understand, you know, I'm made in your image. Something is amiss. Our confession takes, what, a fourth of a minute. 
not a fourth of a day. Ladies, we're not to laugh or rejoice in the presence of sin. In fact, in verse 10, James wraps up the whole of the ten imperatives, the ten commands to repent. And notice what he says in verse 10. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourself. Allow yourself to be humbled. What will happen if you do this? James says he'll lift you up. He will exalt you. He will exalt you. What does this mean? He will exalt you from the condition of a broken-hearted child who's weeping and mourning and lamenting over their sin to that of a forgiven child. He will cleanse your hearts. He will wipe away your sins. He will remove the sadness. He will fill you with joy. You know, that was one of the, the main things that I saw changed in my life after I, I gave it to Christ was joy. I had no joy. I had no joy. Not in here. I had no joy. The prophet Isaiah says to the regarding the Lord, he anointed him to give us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Why? So that we can be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, so that he might be glorified. What's the cure for worldliness? Well, not only a devotion to God, but a denial of yourself by cleansing your hands, purifying your hearts, lamenting, mourning, weeping over your sin, being humble before God. Ladies, James has clearly given us the remedy for worldliness. He's taken very precise steps to make sure our faith is genuine, that we all in this room have made that commitment to follow Christ in salvation. Anybody be saying, Susan, well, how can I really know if I'm repenting? I mean, I feel like I have. I feel like I've bowed my knee to Christ. I feel like I, at that time, God saved me, that I submitted to him, that I resisted the devil by getting out of the world, and I lamented, and I wept, and I mourned over my sin. How can I know for sure if I've really submitted my life to his lordship? Is there any way to measure that? Yes, there is. First of all, we've gone through, you know, eons of tests in James already, and we're going to go through eons of more, even though we only have a chapter and a half left. We still have about, what, seven more lessons. We still have a few more tests of our faith. These are all measures to see where you are. Also, 1 John, for those of you that have tested faith or life-dominating sins in the back, I give 20 tests from 1 John. This is how we know him if we keep his commandments. This is how we know him. If we say we you know, uh, love God and hate our brother, we're a liar. This is how we know him. There's 20 tests in 1 John. But there's also another passage that I want to turn to in closing tonight, and that is in 2 Corinthians, because Paul gives seven ways that you can know for sure if you have truly repented if you have genuine repentance not worldly sorrow but godly sorrow second corinthians chapter 7 just look at these few verses with me if you would paul says this i rejoice second corinthians 7 beginning in verse 9 now i rejoice not that you were made sorry but that your sorrow led to repentance For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But, here's the contrast, the sorrow of the world produces death. 
For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, clearing of yourselves, indignation, fear, vehement desire, zeal, vindication. In all these things you prove yourself to be clear in this matter. Therefore, though I wrote to you, I did it not for the sake of him who had done this wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. What's Paul saying? How can you know for sure if your sorrow is godly or if it's worldly? Worldly sorrow leads to death, right? Like Esau. He was just sorry he got caught, right? But there, ladies, is a sorrow that is godly, and it has seven fruits. Notice the first one. The first one is carefulness, or your translations might say diligence. You might say, what does that mean? If you have truly committed your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, genuine repentance produces a diligence in your life to deal with the issues of sin in your life. You don't take a casual approach to sin. However, worldly sorrow produces a carelessness. It's a lack of concern over sin. Sure, I told a lie today, but who cares, you know? God, he'll forgive me. There's no, it's like, who cares? I don't care. The second thing, notice what Paul says. I don't know what your translation says. A cleansing of yourself or a clearing of yourself. What does this mean? Ladies, if you are truly repentant, if you have truly repented, if you have truly embraced Christ as your Lord, you have sought God's forgiveness. You will continue to seek God's forgiveness. You will continue to seek others' forgiveness. There's a clearing of yourself. It's like Paul says, I seek to have what? Short accounts with God and man. If I know that I've offended you, I go and I make it right. Worldly sorrow, however, produces rationalizing your sin, excusing it, defending it. It's like, well, yeah, I know I'm in a bad mood today, but I'm PMS, so just leave me alone. But, you know, a godly thing, well, you know what? I know I'm, you know, it is that time of the month, but that's no excuse for my sin. I'm so sorry. Would you please forgive me for that? That was wicked and evil. Notice the third characteristic. Paul says indignation. What does that mean? Genuine repentance produces righteous anger that you have offended a holy God. You're angry. I mean, do you ever ever get angry at your sins? Like, man, why did I do that again? I thought I had that thing conquered. But you know what? Worldly sorrow will produce just anger at yourself, angers at other, anger at the mess you're in, you know? But not angry because you offended a holy God or you've hurt your husband or hurt a member of the body of Christ. Number four, notice what he says. What fear it's produced in you. What does this mean? Genuine sorrow produces a fear of God and a fear of displeasing him. That's one way you can know for sure. Do you, you know, I was so great. I've told you this so many times. You're probably sick of me telling you. I'm so grateful for my dad, soon to be 91, who taught me a fear to fear God. We don't teach our children to fear God. Genuine sorrow produces a fear of God, a fear of his displeasure. Worldly sorrow, you know what it produces? Just a fear of the consequences. You know, you got your hand caught in the cookie jar and you know mom is going to slap it. So it's just a fear of what's going to happen to you. Fear of others, but not a fear of God. Notice what the fifth thing Paul says, a vehement desire. You might say, well, what's that? If you are genuinely repentant, you have a longing, an intense craving 
to settle issues and see relationships restored. You will not be able to stand it. I remember when I gave my life to Christ, I wanted to go back and make everything right with everyone I had ever offended. It bothered me. I remember from an employee, I did something very terrible, and I wanted to go back and ask his forgiveness. I remember stealing money from Promenade Mall when I was at 13 years old, and boy, I got figured out how much money and how much interest, and I wrote him a letter and said I had stolen this money when I was 13 and stolen all these items out of these stores, and I wanted to restore what I had done. It was wrong. It was wicked. But worldly sorrow just produces a longing, does not produce a longing for true restoration you don't really care it's like who cares that i stole who cares that i did this you know they'll figure it out number six notice what he says a zeal you have a zeal what does this mean a zeal to remove sin and to seek to seek the work of reformation with a great earnestness If you have worldly sorrow, you're just lethargic about sin. There's no battle against sin. There's no fight. There's no hatred. There's nobody that holds you accountable. There's nobody that you really tell your real problems to. There's nobody you're transparent with. You don't really care about your sin. It's like, yeah, I can hide it. But someone who's genuinely repentant has a zeal. They don't want sin in their members. And so they're like, you know, they either talk to their husband or their mentor or their somebody, and they say, you know what, I'm really struggling. I have a problem here. I need help. I'm angry. I'm an angry person. Or I have a problem with lust. Or I have a problem with pornography. I need some help. There's a zeal to get rid of the sin. And then the last one, notice what he says, full punishment. Full punishment. What does that mean? If we're genuinely repentant, ladies, this produces an avenging of wrong. Avenging of the wrong. This person no longer tries to protect himself or herself no matter what the cost. They don't care. Even if it means you might go to jail. Even if it means you find your your husband finds out you've committed adultery. You don't care. You're not trying to protect yourself anymore. You just want to be right with God. Worldly sorrow, however, produces no real effort to correct the problem. You don't really care. Ladies, I was in, I would encourage you each this evening to examine yourself. Make sure that you have done those ten steps that James, those ten imperatives, when he calls them to salvation. Make sure that your life has really been submitted to the lordship of Christ. For those of you that do know him, he's lord of your life. I pray you're serious about sin in your members. Don't take a casual approach to it. Weep, mourn, lament. Be zealous about fighting sin in your life. Be careful to clear up any offenses that you've committed. Find someone to hold you accountable. Find a mentor. If and only these things are manifested in your life that James is talking about this evening, you can be assured that you are not among the many Christians who are double-minded, thus proving their faith is dead. Let's close. I know I've gone over just a little bit. Father, I do thank you for this lesson. I thank you for these words. I know that... um, I really appreciate the um, straightforwardness of this text. Lord, knowing that in my own life, I um, did take a casual approach to my salvation, a casual approach to sin. I didn't really see the heinous of it, the wickedness of it, the offense against a holy God. And Lord, I would pray if there is at least even just one woman this evening that really has not made that full turn away from the world, 
and full embrace to Christ as her master and her Lord, that tonight would be the night that she submits to God, resists the devil, cleanses her hands and her heart, and yields to you. And I pray this, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.